Scott has an interesting practice. He really does. On Saturdays, he likes to gather together with some friends of his for lunch. Sometimes he knows those people really well, and other times friend is defined by just casual acquaintance. But along about Tuesday of every week, he starts making some phone calls to see if some guys are interested in joining him. One particular week, he called three men, told them that he was going to be at a certain restaurant at noon on Saturday and wanted them to join him. All three of them were excited about it. They said they'd be there, and they showed up. However, it wasn't just the four of them on that particular Saturday. There were five people there. One of the men that he called had invited another man to come along. His name was Jim. Scott would describe him as roughly 80 years old, and he looked like a golfer. Now, if you play golf, you know exactly what that looks like. He looked like a golfer. They all gathered around the table, and the waitress came and put menus in front of them. And as happens in situations like that, everybody opens up their menu, and they start looking for what they want to order, making sure that they order just the right thing, kind of a special time out with different people. She came back and took everybody's orders. She started with Scott. Scott ordered a sandwich. The person sitting next to him ordered a salad. Next to him, somebody ordered soup and then another sandwich. And then it came to Jim. Jim shocked them all. He said, I'd like two scoops of vanilla ice cream over apple pie. Scott was just completely taken aback by that. Soup and sandwich and salads, that was the order of the day. But Jim... Turned everything upside down. I want two scoops of ice cream over apple pie. Scott would say that he tried to pay attention to the whole conversation throughout the course of their meal, but he couldn't. He was totally distracted by what Jim had ordered. He couldn't figure it out. You're sitting at lunch. How can you have pie and ice cream for lunch? Well, that next Tuesday, when he started to make plans for the next Saturday, he called Jim. He'd really enjoyed their time together, but he was still somewhat enthralled by his order, and he wanted to talk to him about it. So on Tuesday, he called him, said, I'd like to gather together for lunch again, but this time, Jim, if you're up for it, how about just the two of us? Jim said that'd be fine. They met at the restaurant. Jim walked in with a big smile on his face, still looked like a golfer. He sat down at the table where Scott was at. They looked at the menus. Scott was real curious to see what Jim was going to order. He ordered another sandwich. And Jim, unsurprisingly, ordered a hot fudge sundae with extra fudge. And Scott couldn't understand it. He was staring at this, trying to get his head around how this 80-year-old man could order something like that for lunch. And he just started to smile. Jim looked at Scott and he said, do I amuse you? And Scott said, well, yes, you do, but you also confuse me. Jim said, well, how is that? This was Scott's response. How is it that you can order these rich desserts for lunch when I feel such a strong need to be sensible? This was Jim's response. He said, I'm tasting everything I can. I try to eat what I need to. I try to do the things that I need to. But life is so short. He said, my friend, I no longer want to miss out on anything. With a smile on his face, this is what Jim said. He said, I have discovered how old I am. Never thought about it before, but over the course of this past year, I've discovered that. And I've also discovered that I've missed out on many good things. No longer. I'm not going to miss out on them any longer. Then he went on to make a list for Scott. That list sounded just like this. He said, there are flowers I've not stopped to smell. There are trout streams yet to be fished. 
There are hot fudge sundaes I've not tasted and kites I've not flown. He continued on in his list by saying things like this. This won't surprise you. There are golf courses I've not played. There are jokes still to be laughed at. I want to wade into the water and feel the ocean spray on my face. I want to go to an old country church just one more time and thank God for His grace. I want peanut butter spread on my morning toast. I want untimed phone calls with those that I love the most. There are movies that I've not cried at. I've never walked in the morning rain. I want to feel the wind on my face, and I want to be in love again. After he made that list for Scott, he wrapped it all together by saying, There are many things I've yet to try, many things I've yet to taste. But today and every day, I have set that as my priority. He said, If I were to die before night falls, I will die a winner. That's an interesting statement. I will die a winner. Now, he has Scott's attention, and he makes the final statement just like this. He said, for I will have experienced the desire of my heart. I had ice cream on the last day of my life. I will die a winner, for I will have experienced the desire of my heart. I had ice cream on the last day of my life. Scott thought about it for just a minute. Then he signaled the waiter and asked the waiter to come back over to the table. And he said, I want to change my order. I want to have what he's having only with extra whipped cream. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way of looking at it. Scott heard everything that Jim had to say and it changed his life. When I first heard that story, it reminded me of Tina's 100-year-old grandfather, Lester McClintock. About the time he turned 90, Les started a really interesting practice that nobody could understand. He started eating oyster stew and cookies every day. Every day. I can't imagine ever eating oyster stew, but Lee Kibler, on the other hand, is kind of excited about it. He's like, oyster stew. Well, Les was excited about this. He had a donut for breakfast, and every night, oyster stew and cookies. Right after that, he went into what we would refer to as his pancake phase. He ate pancakes every night for dinner. He was 95 years old. If he wanted to eat pancakes every night for dinner, by golly, he could eat pancakes every night for dinner. That's all that tasted good to him, and that's all he wanted. Today, he's in Jim's camp. He eats ice cream. That's all he eats. He doesn't really like anything else, doesn't have much of an appetite, so he eats ice cream. And if he were to die before night falls, he will die a winner. He's added to that an interesting little quirk now at 100 years old. He's living in an assisted living facility, and he sleeps in his clothes, fully dressed. He sleeps in his clothes. When his daughter asked him about it, he explained it to her this way. If there's a fire or if the Lord returns, I'm ready. <laughs> Isn't that a great thing? It really is. If there's a fire or the Lord returns, I'm ready. And he is in either situation. He will die a winner. So will Jim, not because of ice cream, but because he's figured some things out. And I believe, as I have read Jim's story, that he was a believer. He walked with God, and he wanted to experience all the goodness that God had put before us. Seems to me that both of those men, Jim and Lester McClintock, figured out what Solomon was talking about in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Why don't you open your Bibles? And just read through this with me. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 6. King Solomon writes, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing his heart desires. But God doesn't enable him to enjoy them, and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more the words the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? Now there's great teaching in the words of Solomon, but they can be a little hard to understand. They really can. That chapter can be very difficult to wrap your head around. I want to read it for you from a different translation of the Bible. This is Eugene Peterson's translation called The Message. It's written in modern-day language, and it's a lot easier to understand at times. Sometimes it seems to take a bit from the meaning. In this case, it gives us better understanding. Listen to how he writes this. I looked long and hard at what goes on around here, and let me tell you, things are bad, and people feel it. There are people, for instance, on whom God showers everything, money, property, reputation, all they ever wanted or dreamed of, and then God doesn't let them enjoy it. Some stranger comes along and has all the fun. It's more of what I'm calling smoke, a bad business. Say a couple have scores of children and live a long, long life but never enjoy themselves. Even though they end up with a big funeral, I'd say that a stillborn baby gets the better deal. It gets its start in a mist and ends up in the dark, unnamed. It sees nothing and knows nothing, but is better off by far than anyone living. Even if someone lived a thousand years, make it two thousand, but didn't enjoy anything, what's the point? Doesn't everyone end up in the same place? We work to feed our appetites. Meanwhile, our souls go hungry. So what advantage has a sage over a fool or over some poor wretch who barely gets by? Just grab whatever you can while you can. Don't assume something better might turn up by and by. All it amounts to anyway is smoke, a spitting into the wind. Whatever happens, happens. Its destiny is fixed. You can't argue with fate. The more words that are spoken, the more smoke there is in the air. And who is any better off? And who knows what's best for us as we live out our meager smoke and shadow lives? And who can tell any of us the next chapter of our lives? Gives you a little different insight into what Solomon was writing, doesn't it? Now here's somebody that took Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and summed it up in their own way to try to make it a little easier for us to understand. Take a look. And there is much that nobody can understand, let alone control. 
From the human point of view, it's all vanity and folly. But life is God's gift to us to enjoy and use for His glory. So instead of complaining about what you don't have, start giving thanks for what you do have and be satisfied. Now that's a great summation of what Solomon was trying to teach. Stop complaining about what you don't have. Enjoy what you do and be satisfied. Now I want you to keep your finger there in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, but I'm going to take you into the book of Psalms and show you a couple passages that could be life-changing for you. They were for me. Now I say they're life-changing because there are many other passages in Scripture that are soul-changing. They can take a non-believer, an unsaved person, and just through these simple little passages, bring them into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They are soul-changing passages, like this one. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's a soul-changing passage of Scripture. Or there's ones like this, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know if you've ever thought about the depth of that passage, but it is deep. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You can make it personal by reading it like this. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. You can even point it at somebody else. While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That's a soul-changing passage of Scripture. I don't want to bog down there. I want to show you these life-changing passages. These apply to believers. Let's go to the book of Psalms, right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm chapter 90, verse 12. This comes from Moses. Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Very simple verse. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, still in the book of Psalms, let's go over to the 118th Psalm. Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If you're a note taker, if you write things in the margin of your Bible, you might want to write both of those passages, Psalm chapter 60 and Psalm 118, right next to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. In my study Bible, I've done that very thing. Maybe you want to connect these two verses, Psalm chapter 60, verse 12, and Psalm 118, verse 24. Just write in the margin of your Bible next to each one of them the opposite reference so that you will bounce back and forth between them. There's great wisdom in them. Now, I would tell you that these are life-changing verses of Scripture for me, and I'll tell you why as we make our way through this but I really want you to look at it from a personal standpoint as well. How are you doing on numbering your days aright? How are you doing simply by looking at every day as a day that the Lord has made? Are you rejoicing? Are you glad in it? Are you celebrating what God has done through the midst of each day? If not, you need to experience some life-changing Scripture. Now, I tell you that they changed my life. They really did. It happened about six years ago. Now, a little backstory for you on all of that. I am, by heritage, a workaholic. My father passed that on to me. He gave the same little gift to my brother. My dad is a workaholic. Even in retirement, my father is a workaholic. And he taught my brother and I 
to do exactly the same. Now, it's not just heritage that makes me a workaholic. It is also the fact that I love my job. Now, you might think, wow, he's blaming his job or blaming the church for this thing that he has to wrestle with. That's not the case at all. I'm telling you, I just love what I do enough that it's very easy for me to spend a lot of time doing it to the point of forsaking other things, staying too busy at my job so that I forget about everything else that's around me. Six years ago, a couple of things happened that started the process of changing that in my life. Now, I say it started the process because it is still an ongoing wrestling match for me. I'm only six years into this. The first thing was this. There were some very, very well-meaning people in this congregation, just a few of them. They're good friends of mine that decided to confront me on this issue. They called me up to a house. I went up there having no idea what we were going to talk about. We sat down in the living room, and I found out very quickly we were going to talk about me, and we were going to discuss something that I had going on. And they said some very hard things to me. By the way, at times the definition of a good friend is a person that's willing to say very hard things to you. They had my attention. They told me that I was messing some things up and I was messing them up pretty good. They really had my attention. At the exact same time, something else happened. I read a book that I was challenged this past week on Facebook by a friend of mine in Missouri to make a list of the top 10 books that have influenced my life. I have not accepted his challenge yet because I don't have them all lined out. I'm thinking through it. I'm looking through all kinds of different books that I've read, but I don't have all 10 of them, so I can't accept his challenge yet. I have made my way through the top three. In fact, they came very easily. As soon as I saw the challenge on Facebook, Tina and I were talking, I listed them off for. The first one is the Bible, the Word of God. It has influenced my life more than any other book Ever. And it continues to do that because the Bible says about itself that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. That's the Bible. If you're ever making a list like this and the Bible doesn't sit at the top of your list, you've not spent nearly enough time in it. And you need to get in there and look at what God has to teach you through his word. That's number one. The second most influential book in my life is called Into the Depths of God, written by a fellow named Calvin Miller. I love that book. I've read it multiple times. You have heard bits and pieces out of it through the years and probably will still hear bits and pieces of it throughout the years because I reread it on a regular basis. The third book on my list is this one. It's called The Rest of God. Last week I told you that I have a favorite author named Mark Buchanan, and and he really is one of my favorite authors right now. This one deals with the premise of Sabbath in our lives. It was groundbreaking at the time that it was written, which was six or seven years ago. There have been a number of other authors that have taken the premise of it, and they have tried to make their own rest of God type of book. None of them come as close as Buchanan does. I reread this book now about once a year because I need to be reminded of some things that are in there. So at the same time that these fellows were having this conversation with me, I was reading this book, and I found myself saying, whoa, there are some things that I'm not doing right. There are some things that I am messing up. There are some things that I am missing out on that I won't ever be able to get back. One of the things that they pointed out to me was the fact that my children were growing up very quickly, and I was missing it because there were a lot of things that I wasn't there for. 
I was off doing this, off doing that, and all of it I could sanctify and make it sound righteous because I'm a minister. And they said, that's enough of that. And they called me on the carpet for it. And they said, your kids are going to be grown and gone, and you will have missed it. There were a number of other things that I wasn't participating in because I was too busy. I had other things going on. That particular time, I had a hunting partner that said this to me. We duck hunt in the winter. He said, you know what? Here's the deal, Phil. I really want to go hunting with you. But unless you can block out an entire day to go, we're not going to go. Because we'd get in the boat and I'd say, I have to be off the water in three hours. Or I have to be off the water in four hours or whatever it is because I have to go meet somebody. And he just looked right at me and he said, we're not going to do that anymore. And he had my attention. Now, this was a, a huge issue in my wife's life. And I didn't even know it. It was so big that there are two times that I remember very, very distinctly where she shed tears over this. And she said, I want this to change. And I didn't pay attention the way I should have. Well, six years ago, when all this other stuff happened, she made some changes to help me make some changes. And she started encouraging me into all kinds of different things, one of which is a horse so that I could learn how to number my days aright and I could learn how to step out of life a little bit and learn how to rest and relax because folks in transparency I'm telling you I was messing up Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and I wasn't messing it up just a little bit I was messing it up a lot if you come to celebrate recovery on the nights when I teach now you might hear something like this I'll stand in front of the entire crowd everybody that teaches at CR does this same thing they introduce themselves by saying hello my name is Phil I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ and I wrestle with and they fill in the blank and there's a myriad of different ways that people fill in the blank but oftentimes you'll hear me say hello my name is Phil I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ and I struggle with being a workaholic because folks that can be as detrimental to your life as many other addictions it can be as detrimental to your life as many other struggles that people go through. Solomon figured that out. That's why he wrote Ecclesiastes chapter 6 the way he did. The psalmist figured it out. Moses figured it out when he said, teach us to number our days aright that we might gain a heart of wisdom. What Moses was saying was, Lord, teach us your math. Teach us to see life the way you want us to and do it through godly mathematics. Did you catch that? Teach us to number our days aright. That's God's math. Teach us to figure out what matters the most. Teach us how to prioritize things in our life. Teach us how to grab hold of the significant things, the significant moments in every day that we are presented with. Oh, Lord, teach us to number our days aright. Now, here's the problem with that. Most people would see that as something that happens after we have gained great wisdom. Most people would look at Psalm chapter 90. Let's just go back so you see it right in front of you. Most of us would look at this verse and believe that it happens later in life, after we have gained some wisdom. We would actually carry out that thinking to this point, that once we have got some wisdom, we will be able to number our days right. Once we have gained enough knowledge in God, we will be able to apply godly math. Wisdom, we would believe, is a prerequisite for godly math. That is upside-down teaching, and it is completely inverted from what Moses just asked of God. Listen to this again. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
Wisdom is not a prerequisite for this type of teaching. Wisdom is the fruit of it. Teach us to number our days aright that we might gain a heart of wisdom. We may spend all kinds of time thinking that we're doing the right things, but we've messed it up because we're not numbering our days aright. We're not enjoying all that God has for us. We're not spending time in the right places. We're not prioritizing things the way we should. Rather, we are spinning our wheels, doing all kinds of things that we shouldn't do, and we believe that we're doing it through wisdom when the Bible would teach us that wisdom is a long ways away from us. Because until we figure this out, we haven't gained that heart full of wisdom. Teach us to number our days aright, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Well, the Psalms would go on in showing us how to pull that off. This is what we just discovered in Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You see, that's how we accomplish this. By looking at every day as the day that God has made and learning how to use it in the right ways. Now, the Bible gives us some great teaching on that as well. All we have to do is go back to the book of Genesis and follow God's pattern. Here's a little biblical test for you. The Lord took how many days to create the world and the universe? Six. And on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. And it is recorded in Scripture that way. Then we get into the giving of the law, and we find out that God says that that same pattern matters. Because one of the Ten Commandments deals with the idea of Sabbath. One of the commandments, one of the top ten things that God says matters is Sabbath. He's given us six days to work, and on the seventh day, there are two purposes for that day. The first is the worship of God, and the second is rest. So we have six days, the whole rest of the week, to pour ourselves into the occupation that we have chosen, into our work. But on day six, we've got to figure out how to rest. But before we rest, we worship. That's God's plan. Now, He showed us how to do it. And then he told us to do it, and then we started messing it up. The Jews messed it up pretty big. They took the idea of Sabbath, and they applied so many regulations to it that nobody could ever enjoy life. They applied so many regulations to it that people couldn't even go for a walk. They applied so many regulations to the idea of Sabbath that you couldn't hardly leave your house. That's not what God intended. God said, I want you to worship, and then I want you to enjoy. I want you to rest. I want you to figure out ways to enjoy life and to pull meaning from it. Because if you don't, you're missing a heart of wisdom. If you haven't figured out how to prioritize your days to number them aright, you've missed all that God has for us. Particularly if you get involved in this cycle that Solomon's talking about, where all we do is work, where all we do is chase after more, or all we do is try to survive. Go back with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 6, will you? There's at least two different kinds of people that Solomon is talking about. He is talking first and foremost about those that are so driven, that are so purposeful in their work that they miss out on life. Oftentimes, that's because they're trying to gain more. They're looking for more money. They're looking for more power. They're looking for more possessions. They're looking for more. And so Solomon says, really, what does it matter He actually goes on to say, of people in that situation, a stillborn baby is better off than you are. Did you catch that? A stillborn baby is 
better off than the workaholic. Stillborn baby is better off than the person that is so driven by whatever reasons that it would have been better for you not to have even been born. Now that's pointed teaching. By the way, I discovered Ecclesiastes chapter 6 in a very personal way six years ago. And it hit me right between the eyes. It really did. Because a stillborn baby would have been better off than I was at that time. And then he singles out this this next group of people. These are the people that are working just to pay their bills. These are the people that are working just to survive. Here's how he words this. This is found in verse 7. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage has a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before others? Well, this man that Solomon referred to as the poor man is the person that is spinning their wheels so much that all they can do is think about where their next meal is coming from. It isn't about the accumulation of wealth. It's about simple survival. How am I going to make it? Now, we don't have a lot of people in our world today that are having to live that way, at least not in Libby, Montana. Granted, we are not the richest county in the state of Montana, certainly not the richest county in the entire country, but we have working people here that have still gotten themselves into all kinds of problems. Now, folks, I'm going to be really pointed with you right now, and it may be offensive to you. That's okay. Some of it has come because people have made bad choices. They've got themselves into horrible financial situations, and they are now a slave to those financial situations. So they may not even know how they're going to eat because of the slavery that they have sold themselves into through debt and bad financial choices. And the hamster wheel spins, and all you're doing, all you're doing is just trying to survive. One day to the next, one meal to the next. And Solomon says, you've messed it up. You don't have this right. Because there's so much out here for you to enjoy. Now Solomon, you have to remember, is trying to figure all this out on his own. He's trying to make it all make sense. So he does something that, from a preaching and teaching standpoint, is incredibly interesting. Typically, in preaching and teaching, you will ask questions at the beginning and give a summation at the end. Well, in Solomon's world, he asks the questions at the end, and he gives a summation at the beginning. Now, if you were paying really close attention as we went through this passage, and you had the opportunity to pick it apart on your own, what you would discover is that Solomon asked five questions to help us get to a place where we can prioritize life right, number our days right, and do things the right way. The first one is this. It's found in the first part of verse 10. If you're a note taker, write these things down so that you can go back and study this on your own. Whatever exists has already been named. And what man is, has been known. Now what Solomon is doing is opening up the idea of predestination. All the way back in the Old Testament, Solomon is cracking this door open for study. Listen to this again. Whatever exists has already been named, and what man is, has been known. Now the problem that people make with predestination is they try to make it small. When really, predestination is a very large idea in the Bible. Now, by large, I don't mean that it's this huge thing that we have to study. By large, I simply mean that it is an umbrella that covers a huge part of life, but not necessarily the small parts of life. So, look at how Solomon deals with this. Whatever exists has already been named. Now, that is a Jewish idea. A name gave significance to things. A name gave significance to creation. A name gave significance to big ideas and concepts. 
Here are some of the large predestined names that matter in the Bible. Light is still light. Dark is still dark. God named them. Man is still man, and woman is still woman. Now you find those in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The light, dark, man, and woman. And even the animals were named by Adam. And none of those things have changed. Isn't that interesting to you in all of this academic world that we live in? You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and find that the very thing that we say during the daylight hours or the nighttime hours is what God declared. Light is light and dark is dark. Day is day and night is night. And nobody's ever argued with that. Nobody's ever tried to change that. Man is man and woman is woman, although it could be argued that in today's society people are arguing with that one. These are names that God put forward. There are some other names that God put forward as well, like sin and obedience and truth. That's predestination. Those things have already been named. Sin was named sin. Obedience was named obedience. And truth was named truth. None of that has ever changed. It's predestined. But when we try to make the whole idea small, what we do is say that God predestined some to salvation and some to condemnation. Well, folks, all you have to do is read this one verse to understand the idea of predestination. This is found in 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So Solomon is wrestling with this whole idea. Is everything already predestined? If it is, what's the point? Well, if we keep it large, we can avoid the stumbling blocks of small thinking. And in predestination, we can stumble across the smallness of it. Keep it big. Solomon will discover that. Even as he opens this door for what's become New Testament debate all the way back in the Old Testament, what we have to do is understand that God named big things. And we have to avoid them, and we have to trust them, one or the other. If it is sin or obedience, we avoid it, and we trust it. Make sense? Shake your head yes. That is an incredibly simple explanation of predestination. So we're going to move on from it. Look at the second question in Ecclesiastes chapter 6 that Solomon would ask. This is in the last part of verse 10. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. Now here's what he's saying. It does us no good to disagree with God. You cannot argue with him and win. Solomon's figuring that out. You cannot argue with God and win. If God said it, he means it. You've heard me say multiple times, God says what he means and he means what he says. That's exactly what's going on right here. We cannot contend with God. He's stronger than us. So we have to accept what he's saying. Now you might think that that's a real negative thing. The majority of people do. We can't argue with God. We can't get our way with God. But if you can get past the selfishness of it, the me-centric type of thinking that people apply to this idea of arguing with God, here's what you'll see. You don't want to. You don't want to argue with God and win. Let me show you some people that have argued with God and what the end result has been. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 26, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. Verse 28, 
Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. You see what happens when we argue with God? If winning is to be given over by God, thrown into our sin, that's no win at all. That is no victory. So Solomon figures out, we can't contend with God. We can't argue against him and win. So we better get ourselves to a place where we're listening. So he takes it up a notch. This is back in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. In verse 11, he would ask this question. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? When we get into a place where we're arguing with God, trying to contend with God, trying to change God's minds, we throw all kinds of words at him. Lord, you need to see it this way. You need to do it this way. Well, the truth of the matter is, more words aren't going to change anything. That's great wisdom applied even to our lives. The better part of wisdom is that we listen more than we talk. And when we are listening in God's situation, that means listening to his word. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8 would lay it out for us this way. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Here's Joshua's teaching that comes right alongside Solomon's teaching. Pay attention to what God says. Teach us, O Lord, to number our days aright, that we might gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us how to prioritize things right. And God, you teach. We'll just listen. We won't try to tell you how it has to be. We'll just listen. Now listen to the next question. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. For who knows what is good for a man's life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow. What Solomon's postulating is that there is somebody who knows what's best for you. There is somebody that knows how things should happen in your life. That's God. We'll listen to all kinds of other people. But at the end of the day, it's God that knows what's best. And we need to pay attention Oftentimes that means waiting to hear from him. Isaiah would say it this way, but those who hope in the Lord, some translations say, but those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. So you wait. If you don't have clear answer and clear direction, you wait because God knows better than you do. And here's his last of the five questions. Still in verse 12. Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? You have no idea how many days you have on this earth. You have no idea how long you will be allowed to live. So follow the principles of the Bible. Teach us to number our days aright. Because here's a deep teaching in Scripture found in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father, speaking of the coming of the Lord. That's a secret hidden even from Jesus Christ. God knows when it's all going to be over. He knows that about your life and he knows that about the world. So you trust him with it. The Bible would teach, if you really want to learn godly wisdom, you apply godly math and you learn how to number your days aright so that you are, are doing what you're supposed to do on this earth. Jesus Christ says that he came that we might have life and have it to the full. But we get ourselves so busy doing other things that we miss out on the fullness of life. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 
is all about teaching us not to do that. It can be hard lessons. Folks, that's something that workaholics have to learn. People that are driven by their occupation, that's something that young families need to learn because there's a busyness to raising children that can get you so busy and so distracted that you miss out on the fullness of life. Current studies say that young families actually eat more meals in their vehicles than they do around their kitchen tables. That's tragic. We're running from one place to the next. We can get so busy with projects that are in front of us that we actually miss out on the fullness of life that Jesus Christ came to offer because the deck needs painted or the roof needs this or the yard needs that or the basement needs to be cleaned or the garden needs to be weeded. On and on and on and on the list can go. Projects can so dominate our life that we miss out on everything else. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 says, don't do that. Don't do that. Understand what God has to offer. Jim would say it this way. Taste everything. Taste everything. Oh, there's a responsibility for work, and we all have to do that. Paul would take it far enough to say that if a man doesn't work, don't let him eat. We have to work. That's part of of God's design as well. But you learn how to taste what God has given us because you don't know how long you have. Now, here's the upside-down thing about Ecclesiastes chapter 6. The questions were at the end. The summation was at the beginning. Right at the end of chapter 5, this section begins. Listen to Solomon's summation. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. And I want you to listen to verse 20. This is deep, wonderful teaching. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. When we figure all of this out, when we number our days aright and we recognize that we live day to day for God's glory... The past no longer matters. We no longer have to work and throw effort at trying to cover up things that have happened long ago because God keeps us occupied with gladness of heart. That is one of the great graces of Jesus Christ. That when we get all of this figured out, you're so happy on a day-to-day basis that the regrets of the past don't matter You get to a place where you're so happy in Christ and giving glory to Him for what all you're doing and what all you're experiencing that everything behind you is exactly that. It is behind you. That's the great grace of Jesus Christ. We sang a few minutes ago about how wide the love of God is and how deep the love of God is. That's it. When we get all this figured out and in relationship with Jesus Christ, we allow our lives and our days to be redeemed, the past doesn't matter because we live in the joy of the moment. We live in the happiness of the moment. This matters. Folks, if you want wisdom, then learn to number your days aright. That's it. Learn to number your days aright. Prioritize everything. And wisdom will follow. As will joy and happiness. A fellow named Jason Addison would actually say this. There are three keys to happiness. He's probably right. The first one is this. Something to do. 
We need a, a defining sense of self, someone to love, that means someone to share life with, and something to hope for. When we get those three things in place, boy, we got it. Something to do, someone to love, and something to hope for. I have no idea if James Addison, or Jason Addison was his name, if he was a believer. Sounds like it. That's biblical principles. Something to do, someone to love, and something to hope for. All of our priorities can fit within those three things. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father, we live in a society where Ecclesiastes chapter 6 seems to have been erased from our thinking. People are very busy. They long for and they hope for the days when they can slow down, but those days seem to never come. They just get replaced. But Lord, you showed us the pattern of how to do this on a day-to-day basis and a week-to-week basis. Help us figure out the discipline that's necessary to live that way and help us do it. Sometimes, Lord, that means that you have to confront us, make our hearts open to that. Sometimes that means you have to change us, Lord, make us open to that. And then take us where you want us to go, into a place where we are occupied with gladness of heart every moment of every day, so that the past does not matter. Lord, I know that's only possible through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the love that sent him to the cross for us. My prayer, Lord, is this, that you will change every one of our souls and then our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.